So I have to tell you that uh, it seems to me that in the last few weeks, um, uh, the Lord has been sort of pressing in on me a call for Christians to be a community of hope and of joy. A community of hope and of joy. You know, I've long said that what we want to be is a church that, that sort of stands firmly and unswervingly on the truth of God's word. And yet with arms of, gray, of grace and of love to reach out to the different communities around us, be they on the right or on the left, and to just, and to just through grace and through love to draw these people in to the truth of Jesus Christ. I mean, that's been our goal. It's been our dream. It's, a, it's how we try to, to run, to stand on God's truth, to reach out and embrace with love and in grace. But, but I think as I'm, as I'm thinking about our society today, I think it's this, this idea of being a people of hope and of joy that sort of needs to be added to that. There's such a great need in our world, in our neighbors, in our kids, in ourselves for hope and joy, isn't it? I mean, if you think about the pressures, no wonder that people are so filled with anxiety and, and stress and depression. I mean, think about just the wars around us. We, our minds get consumed with the Ukraine and Russia and so on and so forth. And, and then last week we talked a little bit and prayed for Niger. Larson's are with us this morning. You can check out more with them as there was this coup over there. And, you know, I looked up and just this morning and there's, there's in the world that they count 32 armed conflicts right now. It's a scary, scary thing. And then we turn on the news and we're just all kinds of, with the weather change, and, and there's, there's news all the time of increased fires and floods and monsoons, all of these different things. Then we think about the polarization that has taken place and between the right and the left and everybody's in their camps and it's just uh, calcified. I and mean, it seems like sometimes we can't even hear each other as what's going on and it gets right down scary. And then we think about inflation. Man, you just want to have a panic attack every time you're standing in the grocery line, not sure if you're going to make it or not. And then there's a housing and rental shortage, and young people are saying, man, you know, I'll never be able to own a house, and people in the big cities are having a hard time even finding places to rent. You know, that was the big prayer from Alberta Bible College coming up in Calgary is, hey, you need to pray that our students can find places to rent that they can afford while attending college. I mean, there's a lot of stress going on. And it brings with it all kinds of anxiety and anger. And I just think it would be such an incredible witness if we, the followers of Jesus, were a people of hope and of joy. And we need this in the world. I need it in my life. It's so easy to become cynical or, or discouraged or, or to give up hope and to just say, well, I can't do anything. Forget about the way. It's so easy. And I think that that's maybe why the, the, the world and the need of my own life that was so attracted to this passage that we're going to look at this morning. It's John chapter 7. Uh, let's read it. This is 1 through 9. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go to, about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brother said to him, Hey, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the works that you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe him. 
Therefore, Jesus told them, my time is not yet. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not fully come. And after he said this, he stayed in Galilee, as we'll see at least for just a little while. Now, if you see by the outline what I've been talking about, I've been talking about how, how we need to be celebrating God's presence and provision and promise and this call to be a people of hope and joy. So where in the world is that in this passage? I mean, it sounds kind of negative, doesn't it? On the one hand, you've got the people who are the leaders of Israel trying to kill their own Messiah. And so Jesus had to sort of flee to up north to Galilee and stay away from Jerusalem. And then even when he's with his family, he's got his brothers who, who don't believe in him. And maybe even sort of sarcastically saying to him, hey, Jesus, you want to be this big hero? You want to be the big shot? You've been doing it all your life. You want to do all these things? Then why don't you go where the people are? And so it's kind of this negative, negative passage so where is this call for hope and for joy? Well, it is in the feast or the festival of tabernacles. Sometimes it's called the feast or, 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 the, or, or booths, like, you know, booths that you, you stay in. Uh, sometimes in the Bible it's called uh, the feast of ingathering because it was, it was held during the harvest time of, of, uh, of grapes and of olives. And it was this great celebration because, you see, the, the idea was if you could grow a vineyard, then you know you're really settled. Then you know you're really blessed. It takes quite a while and it's a little bit frivolous. It's not, you know, you don't need it to eat. And so, and so there's this celebration at this feast of tabernacles. As a matter of fact, it was called by the Jews our season of joy. Our season of joy. That's what this, this seven or eight day feast actually was. It, it wasn't, some people say that you know, it was one of the great pilgrim feasts. You've got Passover and you've got Pentecost. And you have tabernacles when all the Jews would kind of flock into Jerusalem uh, for these great feasts. And, and some people say that the, the Feast of Tabernacles was the most holy and the most joyous feast. It was a huge, huge thing. And it makes sense that this, that this eight-day festival, God said have seven, but somewhere along in history, by the time of Jesus, they added an eighth day. And they celebrated in this feast the presence of the provision and the promises of God. The presence, the provision, and the promises of God were all sort of wrapped up in this feast. You know, honestly, I hadn't paid much attention to this feast throughout my life. I mean, I, th I thought it was kind of cool, you know, because it's kind of like camping, you know, and they go, go camping once a year, and that, that might be kind of fun. But, you know, I thought lots about Passover, you know, because we've got communion, and we have Easter and all of those things. But, but, but Tabernacles, I never paid much attention because... I didn't think it was of much practical help to us today, so why, why spend a whole lot of time into it? But oh man, as I dug into it, how wrong I have been. As I said, some argue that it was the most important feast. John certainly considers it one of the most important feasts. Because he, we come into this Feast of Tabernacles under the whole thing about signs and how, how the different feasts and all the different things point towards Jesus, at Tabernacles, he spends at least a chapter and a half, all the way through the middle of chapter 8. But a lot of scholars say, no, 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 he doesn't just spend chapter 7 and 8, he sends all the way through till chapter 10, verse 22, when he picks up with Hanukkah. 
All of those big, great, big chunk of the Gospel of John all has to do with the Feast of Tabernacles because John knows it is critical for those in those days and it is critical for us. They all point to Jesus. Now, we've got to get a bit of background so you understand what's going on here, okay? Otherwise, it just kind of slips over like it did for me for all these years to my uh, much of embarrassment. What you need to do is understand that, that this all has to do with Exodus. Okay, remember Genesis, Exodus. So Exodus is, is this record of when God's people escaped or d- were delivered from hundreds of years of slavery in Egypt and went towards the promised land and eventually got there. Now, for the Jewish people, that was the formational time of their life. I mean, they, they looked to Abraham, you know, our father was wandering in me and that was all good. But when you think about how, how the nation was formed, when they got the Ten Commandments, when they got the covenant, all those things, the exodus was the formational event. And tabernacles all had to do with exodus. So, The presence of God is kind of the critical part when we think about Exodus. It's a myth, I think, when Moses says to God, unless you go with us, we won't go. There in Exodus chapter 33. Remember what's happened? They've, They've left Egypt. Moses has been up to the mountain. He's received the covenant. And then the problem with that is, you know, is when they, as he's up there, Aaron and the Israelites down below, they make the golden calf. Remember that whole deal? And then Moses comes down and they're dancing around and they're worshipping this golden calf. You know, this is the, this is the God that brought us up out of Egypt. And, and, and God has to punish them and so on. And, and there's all this kind of misery. Uh, then after that, God says to Moses, okay, now you go ahead up into the promised land this land of milk and honey, but I'm not going to go with you. I'll send an angel with you. There'll be an angel that goes in front of you and he'll push out the people. He'll fight for you, but I'm not going to go with you because these people tick me off so much, I'm going to kill them because every time I turn around, they're they're worshiping something false. So you just go ahead. I'm going to send an angel with you and that's going to be good, but I'm a merciful God and they're ticking me off and I don't want to wipe them out, so I'm not going. I'll just kind of hang back and send my name. And Moses says, Lord... What we've learned through this time in the wilderness is that you are not with us. If you are not present, we are hooped. And if you're not going to go up with us into the promised land and take on all of these armies and all of these fortified cities and all of these things, if you're not going to go with us, please don't send us because it'll be an absolute disaster if we go alone. And God relents. And he says, okay, I'll continue to go with you in my tabernacle. I'll continue to be with you. I'll tabernacle with you. And John's kind of hinting back to chapter 1, verse 14, which we saw that the word took on flesh and tabernacled, traveled, lived with us for a good period of time. Moses knew, you see, his dependence upon the presence of God in difficult, difficult, hard times. And God had shown that difficulty in a number of ways. He did it by the provision of manna. And we looked at that a couple of weeks ago with the feeding of the multitude, that whole deal kind of thing. But some of the other ways, think back how God did it. One of the ways that God showed his presence and one of the ways that God provided for them was, was the night fires. Remember that whole deal? That God would lead his people through the wilderness with a pillar of cloud at night 
But during the day, there'd be, during the day, but at night, there'd be this pillar of fire to show the people that I am present with you. Even in the midst of darkness, you can see that I am with you. Even in the midst of darkness, if you need to, you can travel. I will lead you through your dark times. I will lead you through the times that are threatening. I am present. I am here. And that was this, this, this light of the fire of God dwelling with them. And there's other ways that, that God showed his provision. He, he gave them water from a rock. As a matter of fact, he, he sort of gave them water from a rock two different times in the history. The first time was sort of the beginning of the wilderness wandering. And they sort of come through the Red Sea and God had delivered them, you know, from Egypt and the army and all that kind of stuff. But, but they got to a place after a few days to, to a place called Rephidim. And at Rephidim, there was no water. And so the people began to argue and grumble and complain. As a matter of fact, as they argued with Moses, what their statement was is this. Is the Lord with us or not? Because if the Lord is with us, he's got to provide for us. He's got to give us what we need because we can't handle it. Is the Lord with us or is he not? There's no water here. We may as well have stayed in slavery. How are we going to survive? And remember what God said to Moses. God said, go and take your staff that was used to divide the sea and strike the rock and water to give people drink to satisfy their thirst will come forth from the rock. And it did. And God provided water in the wilderness for them to drink the second time happened sort of, it kind of bookends it. That kind of happened at the beginning of the wandering. The second time sort of happened over here at the end of the wandering. And even after God had provided with them and walked with them and been present with them for 40 years, they get started towards the end. And again, they come to a place where there's a shortage of water. And they're complaining once again, where is God? Is he with us? What's going on? And they're quarreling and they're arguing about, you know, is God here? And who's this Moses? And are you our leader? And all this kind of stuff. And Moses goes to God and God says, go and speak to the rock. It's interesting, in Jewish, um, I don't know what the right word to use, it's tradition. Uh, they have this idea that the rock kind of followed them. It was a living rock and it traveled with them. So he said, go and speak to the rock. But you remember things didn't quite do right. Remember this story? So Moses is so ticked off with the people, he goes out and he says, as he's got Aaron, his brother, the priest standing beside us, he does two things that are wrong. He says, must we provide water for you? And instead of just speaking to the rock, he strikes the rock twice. And water comes forth and the people are blessed and provided for in spite of rebellion, in spite of not doing what God wants. God still in his mercy provided what is necessary. But he says to Moses, because you didn't have faith, because you didn't just trust me to say water come forth, because you sort of took credit for yourself, you're not going to get into the promised land. You'll see it, but you're not going to get in. But the water was provided. And the Feast of Tabernacles looked back to this incredible time of the Exodus and God's presence, his provision, and his promise to be 
with them and to continue to provide. And so the Feast of Tabernacles was this season of their joy, this season of their hope. And the scholars tell us that actually it was everybody's favorite feast. There's a great quote by one of the rabbis in in the Mishnah, and it says this, he who has not seen this celebration, that's the tabernacles, he who has not seen the Feast of Tabernacles has never seen joy in his life. Do you get the sense of that? He's saying this is the most joyous, wonderful, marvelous festival that you can possibly imagine. It is so full of joy and hope and celebration that if you've never seen the Feast of Tabernacles, you don't even know what joy is. You don't even know what laughter is. You don't even know what celebration is unless you participated and seen the Feast of Tabernacles. I mean, no wonder it was their favorite feast. I mean, there was eight days. As I said, the Bible has seven, but then they kind of added an extra Sabbath in there. They added an extra day, and it was a day that was just full of parades and dancing and music and phenomenal barbecues. I mean, you see, you understand what happened. You see, there, there were so many sacrifices made during the Feast of Tabernacles, which everybody had to bring some. There were so many, so many sacrifices made. The priesthood was divided into 24 divisions, right? And they'd rotate as they go and take it. No, no, no. In the Feast of Tabernacles, everybody's on duty. We need everybody here because there are so many sacrifices. And you understand what happened to the sacrifices? A little bit's burned up to God. A little bit goes to the priests. And the rest... It's for the tailgate party. I mean, the entire city was, was filled with the, oh man, the sweet aroma of roasted lamb. You know, in Canada, your lamb is so fatty. Man, back in England, we'd get Welsh lamb. And mom would make these, this lamb meal. And even as a little kid, and this is Jerusalem in the Feast of Time. It was just full of the singing and dancing and feasting and the, the aroma of sweet lamb being roasted and everybody would be together, people they hadn't seen together for a long time. And they'd have this great, big, marvelous feast and, and everybody was there. It was an incredible thing. Look at what God says in the, in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 16. He says this, look, Be joyful at your festival. It's a command of God. Hey, this is Feast of Tabernacle. You be joyful. Why? Because you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levites, the foreigners, the fatherless, the widows who live in your towns, for seven days celebrate the festivals of the Lord your God at the place the Lord will choose. For the Lord your God will bless you and all of your harvest and all of the work of your hands and your joy will be complete. And so the Jews used to say about tabernacles, all were to be welcomed because Yahweh welcomes all. Everybody came, the slaves, everybody got in on the, on, on, the, on the barbecue, the tailgate party. As a matter of fact, the Jews began to believe that it was going to be at the time of the Feast of the Tabernacles that the Gentiles would be gathered in and come to Jerusalem and get to see Yahweh. Tabernacles was just this marvelous, wondrous, incredible joy-filled, hopeful celebration of God's presence, his provision, and his promise. And that there were three main things besides the barbecue. 
there were three main things that, that, that needed to take place at the tabernacles. They had to live in temporary shelters, in tabernacles, in lean-tos, in booths. They had to, number two, they had to have these incredible processions. A procession of fire and a procession of light, of water. Fire and light and water. Living in booths, two processions centered in uh, each day with, with tabernacles. And it was this great rejoicing in God's presence. That's what tabernacles was. A rejoicing in God's presence. And it foretold of Jesus tabernacling amongst us. Of Jesus' presence right here today, right now, with us in our midst. It was this celebration that God says, listen, I promise I will travel with you. And because of, to remind people of this, people would have to make these, these temporary shelters. They'd, they'd travel to Jerusalem and they'd make these lean-tos. And the people who lived in the city would, would make lean-tos as well on their roofs and in their courtyards. And, and everybody would stay in this place. And, and as, as things went on, there were certain rules that had to do with these, with these temporary dwellings. They couldn't be under a tree. Because the tree was sheltered in and of itself. And they had to be a, a, a temporary thing that they built. And here's the weird thing. It had to be frail. No good if you're a carpenter. It's the one time in my life I would have been happy to build something that's a piece of not good stuff. <laughs> and it had to be that way. It said it had to have more shade, but you had to have holes in the roof. Because the starlight had to be able to come through and it had to allow rain through it when it rained. To show us that we are fragile. To show us that our own efforts will never be enough. But that God will be with us and God will provide. And here's another weird thing. You had to have holes in the roof so that when it rained the water would come through. But when it rained, you didn't have to stay in the booth. You could stay at home. Invite the relatives over. Why did the, the rabbi say, well, here's why. It's because God is merciful and God is gracious and he gives exemptions for people just for the sake of their comfort. Because this is the kind of God that we serve. And so they, they, they'd be in these temporary, in these temporary booths, but, but God says, I'm going I'm to travel with you and I'm going to be merciful and I'm going to provide you shelter. And it's this great hope that God would be with them and God would be with us in the darkest times. In the darkness, God leads us. And that was this whole thing with the pillar of fire and the procession of fire. It, it was quite a deal. It'd be quite a sight. As a reminder of the, of the pillar of fire that God is with us and leads us through darkness, there'd be this great evening joyous parade. Up on the temple, on the, which was built on the hill, there, there were four giant candelabras, four, four menorahs. And those suckers were 23 meters high. They were like 75 feet high. And, um, and, and, and <laughs> it was in the court of the women, which will be important when you get to chapter 8 in the first little bit here. They, they were in the court of the women. And what would happen is, is that young people ahead of time would go and they'd fill the bowls on the top of these candelabras with oil and they'd kind of have fun in doing that. Uh, fun fact, the wicks on the candelabras were the underwear of the priests. 
kind of weird, but maybe that was for the great four boys that God did that. I don't know what to do. What to do. But that, that's what the Israel works. And, and then what would happen is, is that there'd be this, this great big procession that would go up. And it would be an amazingly joy-filled procession. Because every Levite that could play any kind of instrument that they could, cymbals and so forth and, and family, or whatever, whatever instruments that they could, all of the Levites, as they'd go through the streets of Jerusalem, would be playing these, these marvelous instruments. It'd be just this, this wild sound of music and, and skilled dancers would go through the seat, leading the procession, and they would carry these, these uh, lit torches of, of fire and of light. And, and some of them, some of them would juggle it. As a matter of fact, let me get the guy's name right. Rabbi Simeon Ben Gamaliel, he could do eight at a time. I mean, you're getting this vision. It's, this, it's all of Jerusalem gathered together, all of the people of Israel for this great feast. And in the nighttime, they'd start this, this procession. And they'd all line up, and the, these, these dancers that could juggle fire and fire would, would walk along, and people would be behind, and, and there would be this music. Every, and if you couldn't play music, at least you could clap, you know, at least you could do that. And even I can do that. You can do, so, you know, you'd go along, and this, this marvelous procession would, would go along through the streets. And at the end of the procession, they'd light these candelabras. And the light, it said, was so bright that it could lit, light even the darkest streets of Jerusalem. And some of the New Testament scholars I was reading said, listen, the truth is this. It would be the most staggering sight, the most staggering spectacle that the people of Jesus' day could even imagine. It was just this marvelous. I mean, for them, you know, Disney World, fire, sh- cracker, show, whatever, is nothing. And all of this was to remind them that God was present and provided guidance in the time of darkness in the wilderness. It was the promise of hope that God would send a Messiah one day and that the Messiah would be the light of sin in the darkness of the world. And of course, we're going to see that Jesus says, I am the light of the world, right in the midst of this festival. One reason for our hope and joy in the midst of dark times is the present and leading of God through the light. But there was another procession. It took place in the morning. And it was a rejoicing, not so much of God's presence as it was a rejoicing and a celebration and a reminder and proclamation of God's provision. How God provides water for our souls. What would happen is, in the morning, the high priest would take a golden jug. And they'd go down to the pool of Siloam. And they would, uh, they, they'd fill up this jug of water. And as they scooped it in and filled up this jug with water, the people would sing Isaiah 12, 3. With joy you shall draw water out of the wells of salvation. This is all about salvation that he's talking about. And then they'd, as they'd march, start marching up again towards the temple. Everything kind of happened at the temple, right? Which was the navel of the earth, you know, the center where everything happened. They'd march up there and, and everybody in the parade would be singing the Psalms of Ascent. Psalms 120 to 135. And then, as they got to the water gate, which is the place that they, uh, you know, it was called the water gate because they brought water in there. And so, when they got there, they, they would take a shofar. This is, I got this from, 
There you are. I got this when I was in Israel. In Israel, you great big ones, but I couldn't get my suitcase, and I thought they might think it was a weapon, so I couldn't bring it. But Glenn, give this a shot. And they blast the sword. Let's see if we can do this. It's a little trickier than you think. So they have all of these things then. All those things then, that kind of sounds like our worship. Their worship would be much bigger like that. And they blow this thing, which is this great the symbol of joy in Israel. When the shofar were blown, that, that, was, that was victory. That was God's going to bring them victory. God's going to bring them a deliverance. And they get there and they, they blast those things. And then the priest would walk around the altar as people sang Psalm 118. And when they were singing that, the men of the place had this, this kind of a shaker noise thing, which was made of, of willows and myrtle twigs bound together by, by a palm. And in the left hand, they'd have a citrus fruit, and they, they'd lift that up before the Lord, and they'd say three times, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord. And then, and then the high priest would, would pour out this, this jug of water and some wine, proclaiming that God would provide for thirsty souls. But during this time, they'd also pray for rain. That's that whole thing in Deuteronomy. I'll give you rain. I'll give you crops. And they pray, Lord, you know, you're good to us. Provide rain for the land so that we can eat and be prosperous. And so it was hope for the future that God would send these future rains. But it was also a time that they recognized that the age of the Messiah would come. That God's promise that he would pour out his spirit upon the land as he reigned the land. That's why we used to sing that song, you know, Lord, send the rain, pour out your spirit. That's that that whole thing, let the fire fall. That's that whole deal that, that God, as you send the rains to nurture the land and the crops, send the rain of your spirit to give us life and quench our thirst. And they would offer up these prayers that the Holy Spirit would rain down upon them and give them life. And of course, this all comes true in Jesus too, isn't it? On the last greatest day of the feast, he talks about living water flowing from his heart. And it was the, the darkest the days of Israel the more important the Feast of Tabernacles became. The darkest the days of our life, the more important the fulfillment of Tabernacles in Jesus is to us. Because God is present, and God will provide, and God will continue to fulfill his promises. But it takes faith. That's kind of the center of that passage. The brothers didn't believe. What does that mean? I mean, they'd seen these miracles. They said, hey, Jesus, you know, you got all this stuff going on. We know you've got miracles. And so why don't you go and show these signs so that your followers who just deserted you uh, will see them again? So they had some knowledge that Jesus was somehow something special. And it's hard to tell whether they were just sort of like helping him, saying, like, hey, Jesus, you know, you lost a lot of guys with that whole eat my flesh, drink my blood thing. If you go down there and show them some signs, maybe they'll come back. Or maybe they're being sarcastic. Ooh, big shot, you lost all your guys. I don't know. Kind of suspect a second bit of brother. Anyway, they knew about these facts of Jesus. But they didn't believe You see, there's a huge difference 
between knowing the facts about Jesus. Maybe even going a bit further and saying, yeah, you know, not only was he this, this guy, you know, this great teacher or whatever, maybe you could go a bit further and say, you know, and he even did miracles. And to believe, to trust, to live in hope and joy in the face of times of darkness and stress and fear and anxiety and lostness. You know, John uses the word pistos, uses the word faith, uses the word belief, the most of it, anywhere in the Bible, I think it is. But he never uses it as a noun. It's always a verb. You see, faith is something that we do. Faith is something that we live. Belief is not just a recognition of some facts that some guy who is kind of special lived a couple of thousand years ago. And maybe even rose from the dead. It's to put those facts into the action of trusting in God's presence, his provision, his promises. In the midst of our darkness, so that we can be a people of hope and joy when the world around us is quite a mess. You know, I, I, I think about our worship services and celebratory worship, a gathering of anyone who will come just like, just like Feast of Tabernacles, that all were welcome because God welcomes all to come and to be in the midst of a people who thankfully take this deep view that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the tabernacles are and to celebrate God's presence, his provision, and his promise and to be a people of joy so that when people think about coming together with believers as they worship their Jesus, that the world would say, he who has not seen this celebration has never seen joy. Because Jesus is that joy. No other name. No other name. Jesus. Jesus. And so let's together stand unswervingly on the truth of God's word, be it popular or unpopular. But let us reach out as far as we possibly can and stretch out to embrace everybody we can with love and with grace and in the power of the Spirit draw the peoples of the world together so that they too can sing songs of joy and hope because of Jesus, the fulfillment of tabernacles. Almighty God. Almighty living God. A God who in the midst of our rebellion is merciful. Who goes with us through difficult times. Who is present even when we are rebellious who provides light in the darkest times and will lead us through the decisions and the hardships and the griefs 
will lead us by your presence and will provide water for our thirsty souls as your spirit lives within us. Lord God, these are the truths that we believe. Not just acknowledge, but we believe. And so may our worship of you be full of joy. And may we be a people of hope that the world will say, if you have not seen the celebration of worship of Jesus' people, you have never seen joy. Amen.